Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Well, it's good to have everybody back for another edition of Political Rewind. It feels like ages since we've had a chance to talk to you, but in fact, it was just a long Labor Day weekend uh, that we all uh, experienced. I hope it was a good one uh, for you out there, whether you continued sheltering in place, if that's what you've been doing. At least I hope you've got a chance to relax gorgeous weather here in Atlanta uh, area at least, you know, low humidity, nice temperatures, lots of bird watching uh, in in the yard. So uh, for the Nygut family, it was a terrific weekend, and I hope it was a good one for all of you as well. Um, you know, it the, as, as those of us who've watched elections for years, and that includes many of the people who I'm going to introduce on the panel in a couple minutes, uh, have always Uh, realized Labor Day used to be the start of the traditional fall campaign season. It used to be a big deal. Uh, That campaign started after Labor Day. Uh, Of course, now campaigns are endless. They never seem to start or stop. They just are ongoing forever. Nevertheless, we really are in the final stretch now uh, to the November 3rd election, just eight weeks uh, until we uh, hit November 3rd. And I don't think there's any question that we're going to see one of the most unconventional campaigns uh, for president, certainly for um, many races on the ballot in Georgia that we've ever seen before. So today on the show, we're going to look at how Republicans and Democrats are handling the reality of campaigning during a pandemic and how will the different approaches impact voting on November 3rd. We'll talk a little bit about the fact that President Trump continues to attack the credibility of mail-in voting, uh, which he says uh, leads to massive fraud, despite the fact that that's often been debunked. (laughs) Interestingly enough, states like Georgia are actually uh, extending opportunities for people to vote by mail, even in Republican states like uh, this one. Um, So we're going to talk about all that and a lot more on the show today. So let's get right to it. I'm joined today by uh, my Tuesday partner on the show, senior reporter at the AJC, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. Did you have a decent uh, Labor Day weekend, given it came up in the middle of a pandemic? It was pretty nice. Managed to make it outside, go hiking in, um, on Arabia Mountain for the first time, oh. which was really beautiful. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great for people out in DeKalb County. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful place uh, to hike. We're also joined today by Kyle Hayes. He's the founder and host of Peach Pod, which uh, is really one of the best political podcasts you can find uh, here in, in, uh, for Georgia politics. Kyle is a native of the state, went to the University of Georgia, but covers the politics of the state from Washington. How, how are you holding up, Kyle? How was this weekend for you? It was good. It was a nice, quiet Labor Day weekend with family, a lot of time by the grill and outside. I'm actually down in Florida, so not in my usual D.C. Oh. confines, but, but good to spend oh. a little time with family this weekend. Uh, President Trump headed to Florida today, uh, uh, not wasting any time getting started on the uh, fall campaign season, uh, trying to pick up votes in what is going to be one of the most important states uh, in the country, of course, on November 3rd. Chuck Evstration, Representative Evstration, 
who is a Republican uh, member of the state house from Duluth, District 104. Have I got that right, Chuck? Decula and Lawrence, <laughs> in Gwinnett County. Yep. Yeah, thank you so much well, for having me, Bill. And you? It was a great uh, weekend to be out putting up campaign signs and meeting with voters. So <laughs> beautiful, beautiful weather for that. <laughs> Yeah, you've got a you've got a general election uh, race on your hands, and we'll talk about that at some point. But uh, it'll be interesting to hear your take on on one of the things we'll talk about today, which is how people are vote are uh, campaigning in the middle of a pandemic. And I hope uh, 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 Terry Nolowitz, are you with us, Terry? Yes, yes. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. There you I was, go. Yes, I was also out on Arabia Mountain on Saturday morning. Oh hey! How do you we like that? I know. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was. And actually, I ran into Terry and Ullowitz. Yeah. Terry and Ullowitz, a Democratic representative from District 42, which covers primarily uh, Smyrna. Thank you for joining us as well, uh, Terry. Thank you. I let's get started. Let's get started on some uh, news that really is just developing, that but that relates specifically to one of the things we want to talk about uh, today. About an hour ago tomorrow, your colleague Mark Nisi, who's been following all of the news surrounding the election, how people are going to vote, he moved a story uh, which says that the state of Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office, is now going to challenge a ruling made by Judge Eleanor Ross, U.S. Federal District Court Judge Eleanor Ross. Let me just set up what Eleanor Ross ruled and then why Raffensperger is um, appealing it, and we'll move forward. All right, very briefly. Um, we Obviously, Georgia expects, as do many states, more absentee balloting than usual this cycle. Uh, the Secretary of State's regulations have said that an absentee ballot must be in the hands of election officials by 7 p.m., the close of voting on Election Day. Um, that was challenged by a vote, one of the voting rights groups. It's, I think it's Stacey Abrams, one of her voting rights groups, which said, they said, look, these are unusual circumstances. We need to expand how the window for votes being counted will work in this pandemic. So what Judge Ross did was she agreed with the plaintiffs in this. She said, if you have mailed your ballot by election day, you sh- your vote should count if it arrives at with election to election officials by three days after, uh, November, in this case, November 3rd. The state doesn't like that tomorrow. Brad Raffensperger says that that will confuse matters and make things difficult. And I think both sides of this are really worth exploring. But why don't you start us off? Yeah, let me quote from the motion that Raffensperger's office filed in court. They say that changing the deadline to return absentee ballots will introduce delay and confusion in the election process. This, in turn, risks delaying the Electoral College process and disenfranchising voters in Georgia, including preventing voters from casting ballots in runoff elections. So 
Um, you know, I know that, that the Secretary of State's office is under, of course, orders to, to count these ballots as quickly as possible. And, and you hear the president talking about, um, you know, the, the confusion and, and the frustration that would happen if there won't be election results called on Tuesday night, if it could last a couple days or even into the following weekend. Um, and, and it sounds like he might be preparing to, um, if not challenge, you know, kind of cast doubt upon some of the, the election results that could be coming in. So um, not a surprise that, that Raffensperger's office is, is doing this. They had indicated when we got the initial ruling from the federal district judge that, that they were going to do this. But it'll be interesting to see how the appeals court rules. Um, Chuck, give us your take on the notion that it may be three days after Election Day before all the votes, legitimate votes, are counted and results are in in many races. I can't ever remember a time when ballots that were received after Election Day would be counted in that election. Uh, and this ruling from Judge Ross indicates that ballots that are postmarked November 3rd could still be counted if received within three days. Uh, my concern is that not having the election results as we're used to the evening of the election or within the next day uh, could really be a change that could fundamentally uh, change how elections uh, go in this country. You generally have the losing candidate call the winning candidate and concede and uh, ask that supporters work with the winner and that uh, we move on past the election united. And delaying uh, those results where potentially the results could be changed uh, in the days following the election is frankly concerning to me. I, I, uh, I look forward to seeing the appeals court's uh, review of this. But, but uh, Terry, let me get you in on this. Um, yes, it's true that the results could change if you extend the window to, for legitimate votes to be counted. But if they're legitimate votes, what's the problem with the vote changing over those three days? Well, no, I agree. I don't, I don't think there is a problem with the vote changing. The votes are what they are. And as we saw with the primary here in Georgia back in, back in June, where we had many races that were very close on Election Day, ended up being not quite so close or actually even flip-flopped after the absentee ballots came in. And again, that wasn't because the absentee ballots were arriving. It was because it took some of the county boards of elections a very long time to count these votes. And so I don't see any problem whatsoever, particularly if you have people who mailed their ballots maybe even three days before Election Day, but it doesn't make it to the county election office until, um, until you know, after, you know, say, you know, the day or two after. I think it's perfectly reasonable that those ballots be counted. They should count. Yeah, and actually the post office Hi. wrote, the post office wrote in a letter to the Secretary of State recently recommending that people mail in their ballots a full week before Election Day and that they request absentee ballots more than two weeks before Election Day. So, you know, the, there are opportunities for disenfranchisement on both sides of this question because if people do mail in their ballots maybe two or three days before Election Day and it's ultimately not counted, you know, the voter has done as much as they can at that point, um, and, their, and their vote should still be counted. So, so I certainly feel for the Secretary of State's office that this is a challenging logistical problem to solve here, but, but the focus on disenfranchisement and preventing that from happening, I think, needs to be the prime concern here. Uh, 
Secretary Raffensperger's uh, motion mentions this briefly, but I, I want to dive in a little bit more. It talks about the potential for uh, runoff elections. And of course, we're all expecting the, the Senate race number two, the, the Kelly Leffler seat, uh, to go into a runoff in, in January. And so if you're somebody like Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins or Raphael Warnock, whoever is going to end up in that two-person race in January, you're going to want as much time as possible to campaign. But if you're, you're kind of waiting for election results and you're trying to figure out if you even made it out of that first round, it, it creates a really awkward situation. And especially for the governor, who, of course, handpicked Kelly Leffler to serve in that seat. Um, that might That's going to be a very excruciating period if you're waiting days and days for, for those ballots to get counted. Right. So, Chuck, let me let me take the let me play devil's advocate on the other side for a minute here. Um, it, typically, uh, when voting has typically been held in person, uh, I was aware of the fact that my responsibility was to get to the polls before 7 p.m. the close of the election on Election Day. I, I get the fact that the mails may be slowed a bit and maybe for political reasons, that's still an issue floating around as to whether the White House is encouraging USPS, uh, uh, the, the uh, Postmaster General to slow things down. We don't know. But presumably, as an individual voter, if I'm cautioned and if you as a candidate, if your party uh, makes it clear to voters that they'd better get their ballots in, say, a week before uh, the election, what about a certain sense of individual responsibility in addition to whatever the problems could be with getting ballots mailed? Well, I, I just would challenge the uh, underlying assumption that there is something unique about the mail in this year. And that being uh, votes in previous elections, even the primary and runoff this year in 2020, uh, ballots had to be received by elections offices by Election Day. And uh, so to change that completely for the general election is inconsistent. I live in Gwinnett County where you can drop off your absentee ballot in person if you wish to, to make sure that it's received uh, by Election Day. You can physically drop it at a drop box where you don't have to have any contact with another person. And and so, uh, so I think that uh, just consistency with what we've had in previous elections as well as I uh, just want everyone to think about uh, a week of uncertainty around Election Day when ballots are still coming in, still being received. Um, it just seems to me inconsistent uh, that we would say, OK, let's treat this November the same and or let's treat November different. And uh, a ballot that's postmarked November 3rd, we will accept it three days after, but not four days after Election Day. Just seems uh, seems very arbitrary, as this has been said. And, and so. I, th I think the Secretary of State has legitimate uh, concerns and arguments in the appeal. Uh, Terry, that, that that was actually my point. I mean, we, what are the voters' individual responsibilities here to make sure they get their vote in soon enough to be counted? Again, I understand you cannot account for the exigencies of the post office delivering ballots necessarily speedily, but with a certain amount of preparation, as you would make on an in-person vote, uh, you can head off the possibility of your vote not being counted. At the same time, you've got Postmaster DeJoy warning states 
that uh, the mail service may not be able to deliver ballots in time, so people better vote early. And the question becomes whether DeJoy is doing that as a public service or as a political uh, maneuver to uh, convince people that their vote, absentee votes may not count and they better vote in person. I mean, it all gets very complicated for me. Well, that's right. And I think that there, there is a messaging and an educational component that's key. Now, going back to what Chuck was saying, what if someone's ballot is postmarked on November 1st, but doesn't arrive at the county elections office until November 4th? Yeah. I mean, that's someone who you know, tried yeah. to make a good effort to get their ballot in there. And that's part of why I, I, I definitely think that ballots that are postmarked by the date should be should be considered. Because, again, you have folks who, who might even mail their ballots a week ahead of time, but they don't get there by election day. And I don't think that that's unreasonable that those votes should be counted. Now, going back to messaging, Chuck is right. There are drop boxes. I mean, there are a lot of opportunities. I know in Cobb County, where I live, there are going to be at least 15 or 16 drop boxes in different places around the county. I think, you know, there are going to be more early voting locations than than we initially anticipated. So I think part of the messaging is, you know, if you're voting absentee by mail, that is great. You know, you might get your ballot in September, October, whenever you get it go ahead and send it back in. Chances are you know who you're going to be voting for anyway. So go ahead and send it back in as early as possible. If you want to vote in person, go ahead and take advantage of one of the early voting locations. You know, I think that there's a lot that we can do to make sure people do know, one, how many different opportunities they have to vote early, and two, how they can do that in a way where their vote will absolutely be counted. Um. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how this unfolds. The, uh, uh, this case now goes to the 11th Circuit Court, Federal Court of Appeals, and we'll see how it plays out. But tomorrow, just a couple of maybe public service uh, uh, messages uh, from all of us. Uh, number one, if you do vote absent, two, two things, really. We're posting, Sam Burmistaz is posting on all of our social media platforms the link to the Secretary of State's page where you can now apply, as of now, as of a week ago, actually, for an absentee ballot. So uh, we'll have that posted for you. But also, tomorrow, people should know that once they do vote absentee, they can track whether their vote has actually been received and counted. And, and there's the Secretary of State has a page for that as well. You go to the election section of the Secretary of State's website, and we'll, as we get closer, we'll post links to this too. And you go to the vote, My Voter page tomorrow, and they'll, that will tell you whether your vote's been received and counted. So we'll watch how this plays out in the uh, days ahead tomorrow. Yeah, certainly. I've been tracking my absentee ballot request already, and, and uh, it's, it's really a nifty tool. I have a. I want to read something. As long as we're still on this subject, I got an email last week from a, a, a listener. I, I'm not sure he wanted me to use his name or not, so I won't. But um, and Kyle, you you may know about this. Um, he says he and his wife both received the application for an absentee ballot, um, which they were glad they got. But under the section asking why they're requesting an absentee ballot there were boxes you had to check off. Uh, either you're elderly, you're disabled, you're a uniformed service member. I, that's got to be an old application form because Georgia's now an at-will absentee voting state, isn't it, Kyle? Yeah, as far as I understand, you can absentee vote for any reason or no reason at all. Um, if I was guessing related to those checkboxes, there is 
a provision that allows people who are in certain classes like the elderly or, or people with disabilities to request one absentee ballot and then receive absentee ballot ballots in the mail for the rest of the elections in that cycle. And so it could have been related to that. Yeah. But yeah, voters don't need a reason to cast an absentee ballot. Well, we're we're going to check. We'll check that out with the Secretary of State's office. Terry, Chuck, do you have any do you have any any idea why their a, a form would ask for reasons for voting in advance so for if, absentee? Uh, check, if you check one of those boxes, you can uh, receive them automatically for future <laughs> elections. I think is the uh, without it's what a Kyle was saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. So while we're talking about absentee ballots and deadlines for which they'll when they'll be counted, uh, Terry, let me start with you on this. As you well know, there are people uh, in especially Democrats who are beginning to really worry that we might on November 3rd see something that has been dubbed the red mirage. Um, We're talking now about the fact that it's now expected that Republicans will vote in person in much larger percentages than will Democrats, that Democrats are going to pay attention to the pandemic, submit absentee ballots in, in any number of states. Those ballots may not be counted uh, until after Election Day is over. And so, as you know, Terry, the concern that some uh, observers have is that it will appear on November 3rd that President Trump may have been reelected president of the United States. But as absentee ballots come in, especially in key states, uh, in terms of the Electoral College, Democrats may move ahead. And this could cause a confusion and a potential constitutional crisis. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I hope it doesn't get to the point of a constitutional crisis. I know that, you know, again, going back to sort of our dress rehearsal in Georgia, which was the June primary, one of the, the lessons and the big takeaways from that is that it takes a lot longer than you might think it does to count those absentee ballots. Now, we have a couple of advantages now. Number one, we we know that we're that the county election boards know they can expect a lot more absentee ballots than they ever have had in the past. So they can prepare for that accordingly. Number two is there was a ruling by the state election board several weeks ago that allows these boards of elections to start opening up those envelopes with the absentee ballots and getting you know, running them through the machines, not necessarily tallying them. They're not going to know what the counts are, but they're going to have them ready to go. And so just like on election night when you see, you know, the, the first results that come in are the, are, is, is the tally from early voting, instead of now having to wait for those absentee ballots to be counted, they'll be able to dump those right into the system the same time they dump in those early voting tallies. So I think that's going to help assuage a red mirage. I think being able to count those absentee ballots ahead of time will do that. But I do know that it's a concern. My husband, for example, you know, we've gone back and forth. I plan on voting absentee by mail. He plans on doing early voting because he doesn't want to contribute in any way to Donald Trump thinking he might have a chance of holding on to the presidency Um, in terms of, you know, that, that red mirage that you spoke of. But I think that every state needs to be prepared to do what they can do to, to mitigate that delay. And if it means, you know, sort of running the ballots through the Scantron, through the machines ahead of time to get them counted, I think that's going to be key to making sure we have numbers that are as accurate as possible. We also need to readjust our our expectations as voters to when we get these results. It's not going to be an election night thing. Well, and I think the media has a role to play here, too, in informing voters about how this election is different than prior elections and about how you know, a record number of people will vote absentee and, and, 
you know, I am uncomfortable for the media having to take such a direct oppositional role to what's likely to be the messaging coming from the president on election night. But the fact of the matter is the law says that these votes, so long as they're cast legally on absentee ballots, even if it takes a few days to count them, they will count and they will be valid and the results will reflect those votes as well as the votes that come in on election day. And I think that's a message that the media needs to put out there for voters to understand. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that a lot of newsrooms, including ours at the AJC, are starting to plan for. How do we present information on election night in a way that, that kind of communicates, you know, here are some numbers, but we might not know the answer of, of who wins for a, a long, long time. And, and there's question of really longstanding things that we've done for a really long time. You know, number of precincts reporting, percentage of precincts reporting. Is that a number that we want to put up now if um, there's going to be a flood of absentee ballots that might not be counted for, for several days? So. Those are certainly hard conversations, and it doesn't help that with social media and cable news, we've become so accustomed to getting those instant results. And so it's going to be a real kind of culture shift in newsrooms, and, and how do we do this? And I, I don't think anybody has a great answer yet. Certainly a unique, um, uh, likely uh, unique election week where uh, we don't get the results within a, that evening or within a day. And I think that that is uh, going to be something uh, that we all should be prepared for. Uh, we should be ready to, particularly as candidates, to speak out about uh, patience as needed while we receive election results so that uh, we can see what the final outcome is. Yeah, this is Terry. And, and Terry? Yeah, I, and I, I agree with Chuck. As candidates, we do need to be the ones saying, you know, Let's wait for everything to, to be counted. But I think also, you know, we know how many ballots are going to be mailed out. We have the data and we know how many ballots have, have been mailed out. We'll know on Election Day how many of those ballots, you know, what percentage of those ballots have already been returned. And that may be something for, you know, a statistic that the media considers sharing also. You know, we know, OK, we're waiting for X amount of ballots to come back in. So we have, you know, these, this many precincts have reported and this percentage of the absentee ballots have been returned. And that may be a way to present it. Yeah, to get into really inside baseball tomorrow, uh, in terms of what Terry's just saying, I used to take kind of enormous pride in, and I'm sure that Terry and Chuck know how to do this as candidates, I used to take great pride in knowing how to count the outstanding boxes in precincts across the state. Where were the precincts not yet reported? Where weren't they? Where were they reported? And you could get a pretty good sense of who the next governor, say, of Georgia was going to be based on uh, what the vote was at a given moment and where the precinct hadn't reported yet. Um, were there enough votes left out there for candidate X instead of candidate Y? Uh, we're going to have to find all new calculations tomorrow. And I can't even imagine what the news organizations who have projection desks are going to do in terms of the presidential race, particularly. Yeah, during the June 9th primary, even the AP, which which the AJC had many newsrooms across the country rely on for election projections, they were getting a lot of things wrong in Georgia because of a lot of these absentee ballots. So we thought David Scott, for example, was going to be pulled in a runoff. We thought that the same might have been true for, for Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th Congressional District Democratic primary. So it becomes really hard. And, and you know, you're a reporter. It's election night. You know all eyes are on you. And you look on Twitter and you see all these other news organizations starting to call races and make projections. And it makes you really antsy. You want to be careful, but you also want to be able to match all these things. And it it makes right. it that much more of a high stress situation. 
Uh, real quick, I, I do need to get to a break, but Tamar, you filed a story this week. Uh, the White House uh, was uh, looking at a report, that a, a study that Jimmy Carter was involved with back in 2005, which cast doubts to some extent and if you looked at it just from the headlines of the study on ab- absentee ballots and the pr- uh, potential for fraud to be built in. Uh, so the White House uh, pushed something out saying even Jimmy Carter's opposed to it. But you did a piece this week in which you made it clear that's really not what Jimmy Carter's study said in the long run. Yeah, he put out a one-sentence statement through the Carter Center saying he approves of the use of absentee ballots, and he has been using them himself for the last five years. But um, he linked back to a, a statement he gave in May urging state and federal governments to expand access to vote by mail and to provide enough funding as quickly as possible to help state and federal governments get ready for this. And then they talk about um, this 2005 report that the White House looks back on. Um, You know, it it does mention that it creates increased logistical challenges and the potential for voter fraud, but they say that if there are ballot integrity safeguards in place. And as long as there's no ballot harvesting, they they mentioned it. it there was little evidence of voter fraud. So um, Jimmy Carter okay. kind of, uh, yep. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. I got to get to a break. I'm a little late for the first break already. We'll come back. We got a lot more to talk about as we move into the heart of the election season in Georgia and across the country. You're listening to Political Rewind. It's great to have you all back with us for Political Rewind. We're joined today by Peach Pods, Kyle Hayes. By the way, Kyle, while I reintroduce you, I went to your uh, podcast page the other day. You're you're getting set to post a new podcast. I didn't see anything particularly new. Have you slowed down over the Labor Day holiday? Yeah, slowed down a little bit over Labor Day. The most recent episode, um, we talked about uh, the outreach to black voters by Republicans at the RNC and looking forward to election season. To me, that's something that may matter in November. So um, lots to keep an eye on. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. We're actually going to devote a great deal of our show tomorrow to just that. Uh, after a Republican convention in which there was, as, as Kyle points out, a major effort to reach out to black voters to say that Donald Trump was a good candidate for African-Americans. We've now seen uh, the president seems to double down on his appeal to white voters, and we are going to get into that extensively tomorrow. Tamar Hallerman, a senior reporter from the AJC, back with us today. Uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz, Democrat from Smyrna, and Republican Chuck F. Stration, uh, House member from uh, Duluth. Chuck, let me start with you on this. Uh, Terry, I think I'm right. Gosh, I hope I'm not wrong, wrong about this. You're uh, you're you're going back, right? You you have I'm no back. Republican opponent in November. Thank right. you. Okay, but Chuck Evstration, you do have opposition, and um, I want to talk about that. I want because I want to talk for a few minutes about pandemic politics. Um, Greg Bluestein filed a really good story the other day in which he talked about the contrast between how Republicans are campaigning and how Democrats are campaigning. It certainly applies at the national level where President Trump has been eager to get out of the campaign trail and has been doing it to a limited extent uh, for quite a while now, where Joe Biden is only now starting to uh, stick his toe in the water of in-person campaigning. But here in Georgia, Chuck, Uh, Greg points out Republicans are turning to in-person campaigning in a way that Democrats are not. Democrats are continuing with digital 
campaigning. Tell me about what you imagine. First, are you doing in-person campaigning? And to your, in your way of thinking, how important is that for a candidate? Well, it's a great article by Greg Bluestein, and it's something that we've really struggled with determining uh, what is uh, safe and what's uh, the right thing to do, but also what voters are comfortable with. And uh, in my reelection bid, we are having in-person voter contact, and that uh, is from uh, door-to-door campaigning and holding events. Now, we want to follow all the protocols, make sure social distancing and uh, that those events or contact is outside and uh, uh, and and that all the uh, all the rules are followed because safety is is paramount. But uh, but I do think that that is something that candidates, both Democrats and Republicans, are struggling with right now, trying to figure out what the uh, what the best and most appropriate voter contact would be. And uh, and that also goes into other advertising, more traditional messaging. And if uh, voters are at home right now because of uh, the pandemic, uh, how can you reach those voters in the most effective way? Kyle, um, it strikes me that when it comes to the ground game, it, we, we were not only just talking about campaign events as a, as a Chuck F. Stration and other candidates are, are starting to think about engaging in, we're talking about outreach to voters, Kyle. And Republicans are very proud of the fact that here in Georgia and across the country, they're doing door-to-door canvassing in their traditional way. They claim to have made millions of what they call touches of real voters and believe that's going to pay off in big benefits for them, uh, as opposed to Democrats, again, using texting. I'm getting text messages. Uh, they're, they're not even to to me. They're to a, somebody is using my cell phone number thinking I'm various names that I'm not, but that's how I'm getting messages from Democrats. Do you, what do you think about one as opposed to the other, Kyle? So I think to the extent that Republicans are successful at making in-person contacts, at getting people to attend their events, at getting people to answer the doors, I certainly think that's a benefit to them. But I think the challenge that Republicans face if they put more of their resources, more of their effort into this in-person campaigning is they need to extend their appeal beyond their Republican base. And the voters who may have shifted away from Republicans in the last six months or so may have done so because they are apprehensive about COVID and frustrated with the way in which it was handled. And those kind of people strike me as unlikely to attend an in-person event and maybe even apprehensive to answer the door when a canvasser knocks on their door. So to the extent that Republicans have added on in-person stuff and are continuing the work that they're doing on digital campaigning, traditional advertising, certainly I think that's to their benefit. But they have to find a way to reach voters who are moving away from them or who are not as enthusiastic to vote in November. And I have a question for Chuck and just how it's going as you do this in-person outreach. Are you finding that that people really are receptive as, as you knock on doors? Do you, are, are they kind of like, what took you so long? Or is there apprehension to even answer the door? Or, or are people freaked out if they go to an in-person event? How's it going? Voters are very receptive right now, maybe in, uh, uh, to a surprising degree. And uh, there is real interest in having that interpersonal contact, discussing these issues, uh, doing it face-to-face, albeit uh, separate distance to park. Uh, but I think that particularly for state, local elections, that direct interpersonal contact is so very important to campaigning. And I think that it's 
I would even say necessary to be able to effectively communicate issues uh, within within the community. And, uh, and so I think we're going to see more of that over the next two months. Terry? What about those swing voters that, that Kyle was talking about, the, the yep. ones who, who might be a little more frustrated with Trump? Are, are, do you feel like they might be less receptive to opening the door, or, or do you find that you're reaching out to them a little bit differently? So I'll just give you a, a brief example. I authored and passed the hate crimes law for Georgia, and I worked very hard to get that bill passed this year. And as I meet with voters uh, who maybe would say, you know, Chuck, I, I didn't know if I was going to support you, but uh, but I'm glad to know that you passed this very important historic measure for the state of Georgia. Uh, I think that that, uh, that contact in person really helps uh, for me to communicate that message to them. And so I, I do think that it, re it really goes back to the issues itself. It's uh, what, what is your message and what is your legislative record? And, uh, and then the ability to communicate that in person, I think has a much more effective, uh, uh, much more effective uh, outcome. But Terry, so I won't even go to the, I mean, I'm just beginning to occasionally go to the supermarket to buy groceries. And when I do, I rush in and out because I'm really nervous about, uh, you know, contact with people out there. Uh, so it's interesting that Chuck's finding that there are people who are really looking forward to getting out and having, I get it. He says they're using social distancing, I assume wearing masks, but that's scary to me, Terry. I don't disagree. I mean, I think we could have a whole separate conversation on the ring doorbell as a campaign disruptor, because that lets you talk to people who are on your front porch without having to talk to them. But oh. I, I know that I am. I don't plan on going on going door to door, you know, for myself or for other candidates. What I do plan on, because I do think that people are very open to those interpersonal reactions. But I think that they're going to be happening more over the phone. I know we found that that in my primary, we did a lot of phone calls, and that's where the data on the absentee ballots again comes into play because you can chase ballots in such a specific way that I think that that's going to be an important thing. And I also wonder about the efficacy of having these in-person gatherings. So, you know, if someone's coming to an in-person gathering, chances are they're going to, like, they already, they already know you. They already have your vote. There's someone in your base. I don't know if you're going to be getting people over to your side of the ballot by having an in-person event. I think that the folks who you need to really concentrate on who, who might not be sure, especially because if they're upset about the COVID handling, they're not going to be going to an in-person event. I'm not going to any in-person events. And in fact, I've seen photos of in-person events that violate the governor's order. So I think that that's a situation where I think you need to be careful. I have a follow-up question for uh, for Terry. Uh, you, you mentioned a lot of Democrats are freaked out about doing in-person events. You're trying all sorts of ways digitally and phone to get in touch with people, uh, but this year is different. Democrats haven't really, uh, you know, they haven't won Georgia on a presidential level since 1992. Biden's making a really serious play for Georgia, but it's certainly, you know, an uphill climb for Democrats. It's been a really long time. So, uh, given that Democrats really have to make the argument to Georgia voters about somebody like Joe Biden. Are you nervous that you might be leaving something on the table if you aren't able to, to go and meet people in person and be able to change their mind? I think the Democrats have demonstrated in Georgia that we don't leave anything on the table and we're also pretty agile. And I think that you're going to find you know, the agility that we developed with, with the door-to-door, the, door, the canvassing, 
that's being transitioned into other ways. I think, you know, there are in-person, you know, lit drops, as, as people in campaign world call them, you know, where, where you might go and you'll knock on someone's door, wave goodbye to their ring doorbell, and, you know, leave a piece of information. I think that, you know, again, these phone calls, the postcards that have been a big part of swinging a lot of these house districts, for example, over the past few years, I think that's going to be coming into play. I don't think that it would be a safe assumption for the Republicans to think that the Democrats aren't going to figure out a way to do it, because if there's one thing we've proven ourselves to be able to do in Georgia, it's to figure out a way to do it. So, uh, Kyle, um, ground game is one thing, how you rally voters to go to the polls, whether you do it digitally or whether you do it uh, with uh, traditional canvassing techniques, knocking on doors. Uh, but the conventions themselves probably gave us some indication of how much difference it makes whether you're campaigning in front of a live audience or in front uh, or or on a TV screen on a Zoom call or whatever there there was no substantial difference between there was no bounce particularly for either Biden or Trump it, it, given that the Democrats did everything uh with video and Trump insisted on having that 1,500-person uh, uh, audience at the White House cheer him on his accept- in his acceptance speech. If you use that, those two, as any kind of indication, it, it seems to be a wash, Kyle. Yeah, it does strike me as a wash. I mean, there are so many variables that are up in the air about how this fall's elections will go that I think it's difficult to predict. I think one thing that does line up for Democrats in terms of their message meeting the environment that people feel like they're living in is when somebody, you know, for instance, gets invited to join a Zoom call or listen in on a campaign event, it's easy for Democrats to say, we're doing this online because of the president's failures on the COVID-19 pandemic, and we would rather be in person, but that's why you should elect us. For Republicans, they have to make this argument that they've been successful on COVID-19 or they have a plan to, you know, sort of finish the drill, get the vaccine like the president is saying. Um, But they have to do that while sort of downplaying the fact that they're doing everything digitally or ignoring public health advice. Their message sort of runs counter to the environment people are living in. I think that's sort of the challenge that each party faces in this moment. All right, Kyle. Uh, Hayes gets the last word on this segment. We're going to take our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Terry and Alois, let me start with you in this segment, if I may, please. Um, We know we've got two uh, important Senate races coming up in Georgia, Senate race number one, which is John Ossoff versus David Perdue. Uh, the poll suggests that that, is a, that race is uh, neck and neck. Um, Cook Report and, uh, and uh, uh, other prognosticators, uh, including Larry Sabato with his crystal ball, have said it's a, it's a leans Republican race for Purdue, but that's even surprising in Georgia, uh, Terry, where Republicans have dominated in uh, in uh, statewide races for decades now. Um, and then we've got race number two, Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, Raphael Warnock, Matt Lieberman. Um, you've got Democrats and Republicans all competing uh, in the same uh, uh, race. Okay, I say all that to ask you this. Is it true that 
that uh, Tip O'Neill, the U.S. Speaker of the House, whose maxim was all politics is local, is completely out the window. All politics is national. Is it basically true that whether you're running for U.S. Senate in Georgia, a congressional seat, or maybe even a, a, a House or Senate seat in the state legislature, is it all dominated by national politics these days? Yes. <laughs> that, that, that's the quick answer. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of my, my colleagues, you know, in the House and the Senate, you know, they're in these, these swing districts. You're not going to see them talking a whole lot about their affinity for Trump or, you know, making America great again or going to boat parades. Like, that's not a thing that they're going to be doing. I think that, I mean, and you've seen that with David Perdue, who, you know, the shift that we've seen in him from how he was, you know, four years ago, just hand in glove with Donald Trump. And now he doesn't even break the jean jacket out as often as he used to on the campaign trail. So I, I, I think that you are definitely seeing a little bit of, of distancing. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how that proceeds over the next several weeks in those, those, those really heavily contested districts. All right. So with that in mind, Chuck Hefstration, are you really sad? Are you saddled or benefited by how President Trump is behaving and, and handling his, his work as President of the United States? Is that so true? I, so I will I'll, uh, disagree a little bit with my colleague, Terry. I actually believe that voters, particularly in this day and age, uh, Trump has, um, the president has uh, taken very clear positions and, and everyone has a position, one, uh, firm position one way or the other about the president. Uh, and that gives voters an opportunity to really analyze uh, statewide candidates and local candidates in a different way. And I think that there's going to be a great deal of split ticket voting this year. I think that we're going to see uh, voters who maybe uh, vote for a Democrat in one race and a Republican in another race. And it really depends on the particulars of that candidate's uh, record, uh, that candidate's plan for the future and, and their ideas. And so that, I think, uh, would reinforce or support Tip O'Neill's uh, uh, statement that all politics is local. Certainly national media and, and uh, national issues are top of mind, but there's going to be a real opportunity for voters to uh, get to know and, and, uh, and support local candidates, irrespective of, of party. So, Chuck, I want you to do a quick answer on this. Well, maybe I shouldn't say quick because that's not fair. But then, Kyle and, and Tamar, if you want to jump in. So, uh, Chuck, you pointed with great pride to your passage of and your championing of the uh, hate crimes uh, legislation, which is now a law in the state of Georgia. You're dealing now, though, on your side of the of the aisle, you've got a president of the United States who just this, in the past few days has ordered federal agencies to stop diversity training because he says that it incorrectly portrays America as a racist country, which we're not. I find it hard to imagine that somebody who worked for hate crimes the way you did would be supportive of an effort to end diversity training. Well, I'll try to be as quick answering this as possible. But the bottom line, Bill, is I do not I cannot keep up with day to day the national news or national developments. I'm running on my record. And that includes we're holding hearings right now in the fall to repeal the citizens arrest statute in Georgia. Uh, I announced on your show previously, Bill, my three point plan to address covid. And I think that uh, I think that my record 
allows me to not have to follow what nationally is being announced and to work right. on issues locally. Okay, that makes complete sense. Tamar? Yeah, I think now we're going to see who the most talented politicians are, especially in the suburbs. People like like Chuck <laughs> in his seat, you know, a very fast-changing part of the, the suburbs, you know, where you're going to have to totally marry the national with the local. You know, I'm sure a lot of members of your base, it's very important, you know, to them to see that you're a supporter of the president. But at the same time, to win over some of those independents or, or you know, people who maybe don't like Trump so much, you, you do have to lean on your record and kind of carving out a path for yourself. So... I think what, what Chuck is doing is something that you're going to see across the board in, in the suburbs. And, um, you know, we're going to determine, I guess, in November who's who's graded it. But uh, I think that's something you're seeing in Washington, too, with a lot of the Republicans who I who I was covering up in D.C. these last three few years as well. Yeah. And I think Kyle you know, and then Terry, the stakes of Republicans ability to, you know, navigate this distance between motivating their base and getting base Republicans to vote for them, but also getting swing Republicans to vote for them. That's potentially the, the difference between Democrats taking the majority in the state house and Republicans maintaining the majority. So the stakes are certainly high there. And I think, you know, Chuck's introduction of this three point plan, I think sort of implicitly is sort of his view that action at this moment on COVID-19 is needed when, you know, the governor is writing op-eds in the AJC saying that the media is the problem and the president is saying, you know, is sort of circling the wagons, declaring victory on COVID. You know, you see this separation sort of in action as these local candidates navigate this divide. Yeah, so, and I, I, you know, speaking as that monolith that the president refers to also a suburban housewife, there's nobody better at walking and chewing gum than suburban housewives, especially right now when we're also homeschool parents for our children. And I think that to, you know, approach, I think one of the presidents, I think hopefully what I think is one of his major mistakes and his downfall is, you, you know, you're approaching this as a monolith. And I think that's especially where these, these local races are really going to have to understand the nuances of their communities in a way the president does not. So then, Chuck Efstration, all politics may still be local to some extent. You've got, you know, Tamar Hallerman points out, you've got to be bifurcated in, in some ways to win a race in a district like yours. When constituents need assistance with local issues, they contact my office either to advance a bill or to uh, work on uh, casework for them. They don't care if I'm a Republican or a Democrat. They're looking for results and assistance in that area. If I can, if I can deliver that for them, uh, I think that that will show up at, at Election Day. And how we contact the voters is going to be what they're comfortable with. And I believe that that, that will show uh, good success and, and results for candidates willing to do so in November. Um, I think this is all incredibly interesting. Uh, the notion of constituent service being the force that drives people to reelect you uh, seems like it belongs to another era in some ways, given the way we our politics have become so toxic. But Chuck Evstration says it'll work uh, in November for candidates who really do it well. So I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you, Chuck Evstration, Terry Anulowitz, Kyle Hayes, and Tamar Hallerman for uh, joining me as we get back to work on Political Rewind. And believe me, in the eight weeks ahead, we are going to be focusing in laser-like ways on the election, but we won't get away from COVID. 
And uh, we're certainly not going to get away from issues around racial justice in this country. So it's going to be an interesting eight weeks or so, and I'm glad you'll be with us for all of it. Thanks for joining us today. We're back tomorrow on Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy, wear a mask, get a flu shot. See you tomorrow.